Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Hello and welcome to Prog Notes. My name is Drew. And I'm Destin. And today we're going to be listening to... Brain Salad Surgery by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, also known as ELP. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, if you've never listened to our show, what we do here is educate and hopefully inspire our listeners to uncover and learn about progressive rock and these bands by listening and talking about albums from the progressive rock archives that you may have never heard or you just want to learn more about. Destin and I have a big passion for progressive rock, and we love to share it with others. And for everyone who has been listening to all of our episodes so far, uh, we first want to say thank you. And if you could please subscribe to our podcast, that would be excellent. So you can always be notified when we launch a new episode. Destin, hello. How's, holy cow. Yeah. Hey, you did yeah. a good job there. You did hey, a thanks. Good job that was there. new. This is fresh. This is fresh. So I- awesome. <clears throat> well, let's, let's dive into this thing. Brain salad surgery. Uh, hello, Drew. Uh, hello, Destin. Yep, that's, uh, what are we doing, playing telephone? So, uh, (laughs) all right, so Brain Salad Surgery, let's talk about this thing. Uh, So Brain Salad Surgery is the fourth album released by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or also known as ELP. I'm just going to refer to them as ELP for the rest of the podcast. Uh, This album was released on November 19th of 1973. So ELP is a, um, it's an English, they are an English progressive rock trio, just like, uh, I mean, that means three, right, Drew? Well, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. means that means Whoa. three, right? Yeah, yeah Whoa. I know. I'm sorry. All right, anyway, I got to keep going here. So <laughs> so EOP is an English prog trio consisting of Keith Emerson, Greg Lake, and Carl Palmer. And Keith Emerson is the um, keyboard player, I guess you could say. I mean, he plays all kinds of keyboards, so we could just say that. <laughs> organ, Hammond organ, piano, you name it, he plays it. And we also have Mr. Greg Lake, who is our primary vocalist, as well as our bassist and guitar player, and Carl Palmer, who is our drummer of this band. So, um, Drew. Uh, yeah. Uh, shoot. <laughs> do you know Do you know how Keith Emerson and Greg Lake met? Mm-hmm. Well, Greg Lake... Was in King Crimson before this project, and That's right. Keith Emerson was in The Nice before this project. Yep. Carl Palmer was in Atomic Rooster before this project. Yep. And since they didn't really start with this band, part of me just instinctively thinks, oh, if you're English and you started a prog rock band, you must have met like in like like a, like a Catholic boys' school. Probably. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they they always met in school. Like Pink Floyd met in school. Um, Genesis, Genesis met in school. Met in school. I just, I feel like that's it, but I don't think it is because they had already had musical careers before this. So short answer is no, I do not know how they met. Okay. Okay. Well, like you said before, Lake, Greg Lake previously was in King Crimson, right? And Emerson was in a band called The Nice. They actually met in 1969 when both of those bands played at a show at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. Oh, wow. And that's how that's how they cross paths. Um, I think they brought in Carl Palmer afterwards. I don't know necessarily their relationship or how they knew him, but uh, that's that's all I know. That's you know that's how Carl Palmer showed up. Um, huh. He's kind of like that ex-boyfriend that you try to get going away, but he keeps coming back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he just keeps coming back. Whoa! Um, I know. So yeah. this brain salad surgery is a uh, this album was big for ELP. Not all. I mean, well. They were already pretty big by 1972 when they released their third album, Trilogy. 
um, and the group toured across the Europe and the United States playing in sold out venues. So by the beginning of 1973, when they're getting ready to work on this record, ELP had become commercially successful. Well, they were a commercial success in both the UK and the US. So in uh, this album specifically, this album reached number two in the UK and number 11 in the United States. Um, which is hard to believe knowing this music. I can't believe that. Like that a number this album reached number eleven in the United States. Thinking well, about they, that now, so, like Yeah, they're so weird because I don't know, you mentioned to anyone today, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, at least of our age group, most likely they've never most even likely heard they don't. of them. Yeah. Not even most heard likely of they them. Haven't. But but it's crazy because they were big. When they toured, they were big. They, they sold out their shows. They they yeah. they were a big act to see, and people, yeah, people just love to see their show, and that's something that we're going to talk about uh, later on in the, the episode. Yeah, their, as well. live, their live their live performances. Show. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah it's it nuts. Was, it was yeah, it was, it was a, a show. show. It yeah. was it was theater, right? Yes, it was exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So brain salad surgery. I I personally I personally love this album in some ways, and I've I've seen a lot. There's I think this is probably one of the most controversial albums that we've had on the show. Because this album, when it comes to the album artwork as well as the music and even some members of the band, a lot of people either really like it or really dislike it. Uh, as I looked online and yeah, was reading and about about people's opinions on this album and the band. Yeah, I as far as like the album cover and everything you're talking about, which we'll reference later, I don't see it. I I honestly like, don't either. I don't see it. It doesn't it's, look that threatening to me. So it's pretty foreboding, but it's not threatening. No, so like. Well, okay, maybe maybe we're thinking of two different things. So apparently, <clears throat> maybe maybe we're not. Maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. Are you talking apparently about the, they got some, the, the thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So <laughs> yeah, I know we'll what you're be less about. we'll be less cryptic and we'll just put it out there. Right. Apparently, there's a lot of phallic symbols on the the, the cover on the cover art, yeah. and inside, uh, it's honestly it's actually a pretty amazing album cover like the color is amazing it's oh very, yeah i think a german like, artist drew it yeah 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 hr geiger and yep. i'll they said he was super interesting to work with um <clears throat> but there's apparently yeah some like phallic symbols and they even said in like an interview like it was really controversial because when they uh and i don't know if this was intentional or not i i don't know I don't know if it was, if they were just stupid and they were like, this would be funny or artistic or yeah. if they honestly had no idea. But apparently when you put down the the actual record itself, where where you put it down into it, that looked like a woman was, you know, her mouth was right there and you were putting it down and like the, the needle, not the needle because that's what plays it, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, the spindle that you put it on apparently was right where her mouth was and they were like okay that's really suggestive too and so i, I right. don't know um yeah. it's been a while since i've actually turned the record on like physically yeah. the lp i have it but, but i i I'd honestly when i first initially glanced at it you, i didn't really look at it that way or saw it that way i i, I thought it was it was cool looking because it has this kind of purplish grayish tint to it yeah and uh you know if if you're listening to it you can obviously go and pull it up online just type in brain salad surgery elp and, and find the image of it because it is it's pretty interesting but, but i don't um, see it like i'm looking I, I at it yeah. now even and i'm kind of like okay yes there are like cylindrical objects but it doesn't that does not look like a penis to me i'm just gonna say it right now yeah it's I, I, so weird i don't know why i don't know why i don't know i just don't see it who knows maybe yeah. I. <laughs> but but then again like then again, just because of the, you know, back in 1973, things were a little bit different socially than they are now. 
Mm-hmm. So who knows? But anyway, I think musically, getting away from the artwork, I think in some ways this album is an absolute masterpiece, but also in some ways it's not. Um, at times, I think it, it seems a little understated. Or all, well, never mind. At, at times, it seems like all understated, like sublime perfection. But And at times, it also seems a little bit overdone. But whichever direction you lean, hopefully after this podcast, you'll be able to see that this is a fine ELP composition. And uh, and honestly, when it comes to the rest of, rest of their discography, I believe it's some of their best work as well. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I love this album. Yeah. I, I think it's a fantastic album. I also love Trilogy, the one that preceded this yes, one. Yes, yes. <clears throat> yeah, so... so. But yeah, so um, like we like we said, you know, after their third album they released, which was Trilogy back in 1972, they toured, they were big. By the beginning, like I said, beginning of 1973, they were commercially successful. So commercially successful, around, 19, around 1973, ELP and their manager, Stuart Young, decided to form their own record company. And I believe the reason for this was because, and correct me if I'm wrong, Drew, is because they were not happy with their current label, I think, being Atlantic. I, I don't know. But uh, they were not satisfied with them. So together with their manager and the band, they bought an abandoned ABC Cinema in Fulham, West London, and converted it into a rehearsal room and a company headquarters, which would be later named Manticore Records, which they released Brain Salad Surgery on. So this also, I found this out, Drew. Uh, did you know about the about the the cinema and everything that they bought and the? No, I did not room? know that. Oh, really? Okay, so <laughs> which is, that's pretty cool, right? Just to be like. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna buy this cinema and then we're gonna convert it to a rehearsal room and the company headquarters of our own record company that we're starting called Manticore Records. They also released this record on Manticore Records, but they also used the distribution of Atlantic. So they used the distribution of Atlantic Records to get the album out. But I believe all of the promotion as well as the tour and the booking and stuff like that was actually from Manticore Records, their record label. And what's interesting as well is that one of the executives from Atlantic Records left Atlantic to be the president of Manticore Records for them. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. I didn't know that. Um, And so they released this album in 1973 on Manticore Records. This abandoned studio was also heavily used for Led Zeppelin rehearsals for their tours. So Led Zeppelin actually used this exact cinema, Manticore Records, to do all of their, not all, but some of their live tours when they were touring in the UK, which I thought was really interesting as well. Yeah. Because I do, I never, I never associate Led Zeppelin and ELP together. You know what I mean? Like that, that is just, that is two totally different op- polar opposites, you know? Right. The only time I've ever heard them together is in comparing figures, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think I learned a long time ago that uh, they were rivaling Led Zeppelin, which was crazy. And like 1977, hmm. when Led Zeppelin was like everything, Led Zeppelin was all the hot stuff, right? Yeah, People were right. like, oh, as far as rock goes, Led Zeppelin is the territory. And ELP rivaled their at least figures financially when they went on tour, uh, which is crazy to think about. Huh. Um, that's ridiculous. Again, like hardly anyone knows that's about ridiculous. ELP. Yeah, that's what I, I was everyone has heard. Yes. Yeah, everyone's heard of Led Zeppelin. Yes. Like people, again, I'm taking from people that I know, right? Of course, I'm going to get people being like, I know who they are. But in our age range, they're not as popular as, as Led Zeppelin. But age back range, in their day, yeah, they age, were. Yeah. Back in their day, they were as popular. The figures show. So That's crazy. And crazy. age age yeah. range for us is is probably early to mid-20s. 
So yeah. Yeah, 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 that's just for to specify that. Normally, most of the time in our in our experience, people normally don't know who they are. Uh, but but then mm-hmm. again, you know, Led Zeppelin was. I mean, I honestly really consider Led Zeppelin and ELP like two totally different genres. Like Led Zeppelin was more blues driven, and ELP was definitely more classical driven. So blues is a little bit more commercially popular than classical music, I believe, especially to our generation. So that's probably the reason why that was the case mm-hmm. i don't know but either way that that doesn't matter but anyway so this album the way that it's structured is very very weird isn't it drew yeah it's kind uh, of interesting yeah, yeah it's it's very bizarre on paper it appears to be just absolutely utterly insane so the the way that this album is structured is um it's got what is it eight songs yeah eight songs okay so there's eight songs in the record the first four are uh well, I mean, really, it's seven. They only separated the first impression into two parts because, literally of, the because of the length of the record, right. of the flip of right. the record. Right, okay. So, so really, they intended it to be like seven. Okay, but yeah. Okay, so eight tracks intended to be seven, but obviously, because we're in 1973, we have to flip the record, and there was a long, there was a yeah. long song that they, could, that they had to chop into pieces so they can flip it to the next side. But right. anyway, so we have a, uh, an eight-track album. And starting off with the first track we have is uh, it's called Jerusalem, which is a uh, it's a hymn. I don't know the the history behind the hymn or where the hymn comes from. I think it was actually pretty popular in Catholic churches. I may be wrong about that. Do you have any more information on that, Drew? No, I was trying to look that up actually briefly before we started because I, I I wanted to know more about that. But uh, no, other than the fact that it was you know a religious hymn, yeah. uh, written I think I think in the early 1900s. Uh, it was a poem first, and then it was put to music right. in the early 1900s, like the the 19 teens, you know what I'm saying, like 1916, something yeah. like that, um, and all of that. But uh, no, and that it was again because it was religious, it was kind of sacred, right? I mean, it was, it was a religious work, right? So right, exactly, yeah. So so that was that's that's interesting to uh, to have this uh, a progressive rock start off with a a, a church hymn. Uh, now, obviously, it's not exactly done the way it's normally normally was played. They obviously did their own rendition, as they did a lot. They did their own uh, remakes and their own ideas on certain tracks and hymns and stuff like that. But then the second track goes into an instrumental called Toccata, which is a nice little seven minute track. This, honestly, for me, is probably my least favorite on the record. Um, it's bizarre. It is. It is, and I'll talk about this later. What? But it's a little too bizarre for me. I, I can appreciate it. I, I do appreciate it, but it's 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 nutty, man. Like it's it's this uh, it's a like a section of a piano concerto that's rewritten to feature the very first. I don't. Uh, well, let me be careful with saying that one of the first recorded appearance, appearances of electronic percussion, which is something that Carl Palmer was uh, very very well known for doing, is creating some just massively interesting drum parts as well as being very very innovative with the drums not just pulling out a kit and put it on stage and start playing he he messed around a lot with electronic percussion and which were these pads and uh that they use kind of like what we see today is electronic drums they played uh what what did you say that they do they play like tones or yeah, so I mean, because I don't know exactly. Are, I mean, I honestly really we, didn't should, listen to it. Should we go through the uh, the whole track list first, and then kind of go track by track? Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me, let me, yeah. Let's do that. that. Let's do that. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm getting excited. So the, the so after Takata, right, which is uh, the piano concerto that's rewritten, uh, the third track then goes to uh, probably one of their most famous songs called "Still You Turn Me On," which is a uh, a really 
pretty acoustic ballad, really, unlike the rest of the record. Um, it was not released as a single, though, because it did really stand, it stood out from the rest of the album. And I think that they probably didn't want people to portray them in that way. You know, so I think that's the reason why they didn't release that song as a single. Right. But, and I've got more on that yeah, as well yeah. later on. Um, the fourth yeah. track then goes to a, a fun little tune called Benny the Bouncer. Benny the Bouncer is a uh, a barroom ragtime piano song. It's uh, it's pretty goofy. It also shows a lot of the uh, the goofiness of ELP, um, which is very interesting because as I think about that, there's a lot of like Genesis did stuff like that. Rush did stuff like that where they have their own little, you know, they bring out their personalities in the music a little bit, which is which is cool. Mm-hmm. But that's a nice little two minute ragtime. It really kind of throws it back to a. Uh, it really reminds me of just this like being in a saloon you know what i mean like it really reminds me of that and we'll play that song later we'll play it for you um and then after that we then go into just a behemoth called carnival nine um carnival nine is separated into four songs but three impressions and like we said before the first impression is actually split into part one and part two because we had to flip the record to go to the second side so the entire second side of the album is with this carnival nine it is a 29 minute long song uh, that's separated it's basically a half hour science fiction suite this should not work uh-huh. like this you know what i mean like th- this should not work but somehow it does brilliantly and uh so starting off with jerusalem let's go ahead and kick this track on re- real quick drew hey drew yeah are you the type of person to stand in line for six hours waiting for the new iphone i don't have an iphone oh yeah no but i have stood in line for the newest flavors of lace chips Always cranking out new flavors. Okay, but but needless to say, you like getting things early, do you? Yeah, I mean, when the flavors are good. Well, the Prognotes Patreon tiers are good. Why don't you try those flavors? I, I think I will, and I think I'd like them a week earlier than everyone else. Well, that's perfect, because if you become a patron, you will get all of the Prognotes episodes. You mean flavors? <sighs> yeah, Prognotes flavors a week early. Just head to patreon.com slash prognotes. God, you really ruined this ad. Back to the show, folks. And, uh... So this is the uh, the first track on the album that we jump right into. It's a nice little two minute and forty five second track. Um, I like this song. It grew on me after I listened to it for a little bit. I wasn't necessarily drawn to this song when I first initially listened to it, but um, I think uh, Jerusalem. Actually, never mind. I know that Jerusalem is uh, is popular because uh, the adaptation of the hymn is notable for the debut of the first polyphonic synthesizer in history. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, And if you don't know what a polyphonic synthesizer is, um, we have two different, um, let's just say, let's just say this monophonic plays one note at a time. So if you go to a keyboard and press one note, it'll play that note. A polyphonic synthesizer can play up to as many notes as you want. So you can play a chord and the synthesizer would replicate that chord with the polyphonic synthesizer. So obviously the early days we only had monophonic synthesizers where we can only play one note at a time. But now this Jerusalem is, uh, incorporates a polyphonic synthesizer, um, which was very, very, I mean, every single pop song that you hear now that's on the radio is using a polyphonic synthesizer. If it's like a, you know, a dance mm-hmm. pop song, you know what I mean? So, right. Um, but yeah, do you have do you have anything about this song, Drew? Do you like this song? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think this is actually a really good song. Um, but, and it's interesting, you mentioned this, they were very popular for doing that. They, they were, oh, certainly. 
well known for taking religious works and classical pieces and turning them into progressive yes. rock, which I think is oh, really yeah. neat. And their renditions of a lot of that stuff, I think are, are great sometimes and sometimes not. But uh, it's really cool that they decided to experiment with stuff like that because they had their own original stuff and then they had stuff that was composed beforehand, but they made it yeah. their own, which is really neat. Um, and this is a great example of that, but it got a lot of flack from the BBC. Right. So yeah, of course. They wanted to play it on the BBC, but the, the BBC was like, you, we don't like this. We honestly think that you're kind of making fun of this. So this is a sacred historical hymn, and you're kind of bastardizing it by putting it in the realm of rock with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that's, that's not what this should be, so we're not gonna air this song on our network. And um, it was really interesting, because ALP did not mean anything right. by it, but they they said they said we wanted to explain but you can't explain anything with the bbc yeah. primarily because you're not talking to one person you're talking to a exactly. whole corporation right you, they're just they're so highbrow they're so far up the chain because the bbc runs everything or did back in the day all all yep. sources of media yep. right so you can't just talk to them and you know sit down in a room and explain to them what you meant let's let's talk about this let's really see if we can come to a compromise if they say no then yeah. they say no and that was it and yeah, so um, kind of sucks. It's a, it's a good piece, but the BBC just didn't want it. But it's interesting that um, they took it that way. Because again, ELP, I don't think meant to disrespect it no, in I any way. They, they just wanted to, to do something interesting with it and and all of that. So it's interesting. It's a, it's a controversial piece, um, at yeah. least for some. Yeah, but it's still, so. it's, I mean, you know, like I said, it grew on me, I think. It was... No, I think it's a great piece. Yeah. I, I honestly love the sound of Carl Palmer's drums. Like, oh, yeah. It, like, like contrasting that very... You know, it kind of sounds like a hymn, right? With that yep. organ. That organ sounds so mighty and you feel like you're in a huge, like, Protestant church hall, right? Yep. Like, yeah. But then, it's cool. you know, the, the drums behind that are really cool. And Lake's voice is stellar. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. It's, it's oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we heard that on uh, when we did In the Court of the Crimson King. Of course, if you all listen yeah. to that episode, this is the exact same singer, Greg Lake. Um, may he rest in peace. Because oh I believe gosh. he passed away in what fifteen? A couple years, I, either twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. But I was really upset. And, yeah. As as a bassist and and vocalist, right? I tried. I mean, when I first, I wanted to kind of emulate Getty Lee, and then you know Sting as well, and all these bassist vocalists, you know, frontmen. And Greg Lake was absolutely up there. And when he passed away, I was I was super upset. Yeah, he's he's upset. he has a very uh, he has a very um, not adaptable. I'm not, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? I mean, yeah. of course he was a guitarist too. He was also, good. yeah, exactly. But yeah. Um, but that's also uh, the, his relationship to the band, because obviously ELP is very, very uh, keyboard driven. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of key, I mean, just tons of synthesizers and keyboards, a lot more than any other band that we've listened to on this show. And so yeah. um, Keith Emerson, I mean, I'm pretty sure, is a prodigy i'm pretty sure that he was a or was a prodigy um, because he's also passed away as well um which is very unfortunate the way that happened but uh it's it's you know greg lake's relationship to them I and he he had some of his moments obviously when we when we listen to still you turn me on that is a very very heavy greg lake song but everything else was really piano synthesizer organ that kind of thing you know what i mean <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what ELP did in in essence was replace the guitar with keyboards. They, oh yeah, 
right? And I say that, and that's a very narrow view because, of course, they have guitars in their songs and everything. Yeah. Uh, but but guitar was a centerpiece for rock music. Yes. It was a centerpiece. And in this, guitar is in there, but it's more textural yes. than it is a focal point. The focal point is on the keys as far as melody is concerned. Very much so, yeah. I agree. So that's what I mean when I say that. Yeah. Anyway. But also, I mean, maybe we can reword that saying that, you know, it's not replacing, it's proving that keys can be the lead instrument. Right. You know what I mean? It's, it may, it may not, you know, I mean, obviously, um, Drew and I, uh, fortunately actually got to see Carl Palmer when he came to, uh, Nashville back when he, we were living here and, and Franklin, actually, we got to see Carl Palmer, which was pretty awesome. And his, his band, uh, he didn't have a keyboard player. He just had a bassist and a guitarist, but the guitarist and the bassist were playing the keyboard parts. So it was, it certainly yeah. can be, they adapted. had these pedals. Yeah. Yeah. They had these pedals that would, emulate a kind of synthesized sound similar to what you know emerson was doing on the keyboard yes so it was yeah. really really interesting so, it was so awesome. yeah so the point being is that you could absolutely flip those two things you know you could have somebody playing the keyboards and also have somebody and play the exact same thing on guitars you all right over there i'm so sorry i am i probably should have muted myself that's all right that came out of nowhere just as long as you're okay i mean we don't want to uh, stop the podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um, um, All right, are we going on to uh, to Toccata? Um, well, yeah. Let's let's. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm not gonna play that. I'm not gonna play this track because it's it's <laughs> it's so nutty and it has so many weird sound effects in the background. And everything. I think it would throw and, off the listeners as we're talking. Yeah, and it's pretty it's pretty lengthy for the amount of just zaniness that it is. Yes, yes. But you know, but you know, so, if you're interested in listening to something of like, oh, that was of, of, of just surreal experimentation. Um, check out the Kata because it's a very interesting song. Well, I, I had a note when I listened to it and I kind of have a similar reaction to you. I didn't really like it at first, but it was, it was interesting when I was listening to it. You, I mean, just like, you know, people listening to music all the time, you get these weird visions in your head. I'm a, a nerdy video gamer. And so when I hear the beginning of it and some of the stuff, I think of like a chaotic boss fight at the end of like an old video game. Oh yeah. It is the ultimate like boss, but it just, it's that amount of like zaniness. If you and took, if you the, took Takata and made it eight bit, you could put it on Nintendo and it would be the last <laughs> final boss. Put, you could put it on like the N64 <laughs> and you have like a super awesome fantasy fight. No, it would probably be sci-fi. Um, yeah. But the the end reminds me of uh pressing like the wrong buttons on a spacecraft. It really does. And, like you're and you're worried that like okay what's happening? Like that's what it sounds like to me and then it's super tense music. Mm -hmm. This is not like this is some tense music yeah. for sure. It feels like like I'm like disarming a bomb and yeah. like the the stakes are like super high. I'm sweating because it's just it's a lot of high energy yeah. and yeah. yeah. It's 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 weird. It's you I think you'll kind of understand what I'm saying when and if you hear it, so yeah. it's, it's bizarre. It's, it's really is, but, um, but it's, you know, I love how you said all of those adjectives of being tense and dramatic and like the final boss of a, of an, of a fight yeah. or whatever, because literally the next song after that is the polar opposite of it. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's so still you turn me on, which is their, their one of their biggest songs, like I said before, and we're actually mm -hmm. going to end the episode with that song. So you can listen to it on the show because I thought that would be probably the most appropriate song for everybody here. Um, because it's a, it's, it's a wonderful song. And so, uh, which, which is why we're not going to play it in the middle of us talking, but it's a wonderful song and it's very, it's a, it's a pretty track and it really highlights Greg Lake as a guitarist. Um, and, uh, 
you know, the cool little wah-wah effects and stuff like that he's got going on right. as well as his vocals. <clears throat> and so, um, and then obviously flipping over the Benny the Bouncer um, and Benny the Bouncer, dude, this thing, this song cracks me up, dude. It's so like, when I first heard it, I was like, honestly, just kind of surprised. I was like, what the heck is this? You know what I mean? Like, I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I love it. I love the ragtime feel, and I love the completely different voice that Greg Lake puts on. Oh, dude, it's a Cockney accent. Like it's like this super well, heavy Cockney accent. It's not just Cockney an accent. accent. It's the, the actual timbre of it. Oh voice yeah, too. it's really too. like gruff, and you know, it's it's. They yeah. thought it was the meanest, you know. I mean, yeah, it's, it's really you know, and they they put on a character just like a lot of you know. Gabriel did that too. In fact, I find a lot of parallels between Lake's voice and Gabriel's voice. Yeah, except that. Lake's kind of gentler voice is gentler than than, than Gabriel's. Gabriel's. It's softer. Yeah. It's a bit softer. It's but Gabriel still has a great voice too. But they both of those vocalists just have a lot of character. Yes, um, they do. So, but yeah, no. Uh, this is this is a really fun song. It is. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people have had kind of a similar reaction to you. It's just weird, and some people didn't get it, and they were it's like, like a I don't. saloon fight going on right here. Yeah, it's like they have these sound breaking. effects in the background. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was actually just playing Red Dead Redemption Two, and so like this is like the theme song. I feel like of <laughs> that game. It's hilarious um, because obviously Red Dead Redemption Two is like you know it's you know it's the whole uh, old west. Yeah, the of. old west, like that kind of thing. And uh, but this also like really highlights Keith Emerson. Just like what in the world is this dude doing? He's a freaking maniac. Oh yeah, you know. But I mean, Takata's got some. Weir- I mean, he's got some really just incredible talent, and um, and which I also think that people got a- gave him a lot of flack about. Like they thought that he was just being real pretentious, and you know, and some people say that about progressive rock music, just period. You know, it's like all it, you know, it's all the pretentious True. musicians that you know they just play their freaking solos and everything. And um, I think they've. It, when and I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I th- also think that they've uh, been exposed in a wrong way, possibly. But then again, they may just not like it, and that's okay. Well, yeah. Well, just a fun tidbit. Oh, here we go. Hold um, up. Hold up. Hold up. We gotta listen to this. <laughs> Whoa! I know. I love it. Just a little thing. Well, at the little blip. I know. At the it's end. really. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thing at the end there, but um, oh, you mentioned some people find progressive rock pretentious, and I get that. It's very interesting. Um, there was a group that Destin and I still really love. When we first came upon them, we were like, "Oh, these guys are amazing." Uh, they're a band called Sid Arthur. Yeah, and we, they, I, we discovered them when shortly after or during our first record that we made. Yeah, and I remember just wanting to hear their thoughts because they were still—I mean—and they still are kind of like a a more independent kind of underground band in the sense that you know they haven't headlined right all over internationally or anything, right? Right. right. So um, I found them, and I actually like reached out to them a bunch of times. I persisted, and when I say persisted, I mean like I emailed them every single day for no joke, probably like a month or two, until they finally said, "Oh my gosh, stop emailing us. Here's our feedback on your album." Right. Yeah. <laughs> but the guy with the guy there, because we talked about progressive rock and I thought they might enjoy it because I considered them kind of progressive rock. Yeah. Right? A more modern yes. progressive rock. And they did not care for progressive rock. The, yeah. the guy who responded, the guy from the band said, uh, I find progressive rock to be stuck up its own arse 
because that's their version of saying ass right. uh, most of the time. And I just thought that was interesting because not only did I consider them prog rock, they won an award. Yep, they did. For like, like what was it? Like 2014 it or was 15 at, or something? It was at the Prague Awards. It was the it best. It was at the yeah. Prague Awards. Yeah, it was at the like best, best band of the album. year. Yeah, best or band, best band of, the of the year or yeah. something. Yeah. So it's hilarious that they don't consider themselves prog or at the very least they don't like it. And they have won an award because of it. And, you know, people, you know, see them as having definitely progressive rock influences in their music. It's it's clear to me, at least. So, yeah, but I just I find that interesting. The, the way that, that it gets measured, though, and I think this is and this is something that I, I've, I've kind of like conceptually come up with over time. And I, and I was talking to I was talking to you, Drew, about this earlier, and I, I, I don't think that you may or may not remember this because I know I mentioned this before because this is just the way I can kind of conceptually think of progressive rock. It's kind of like a scale to measure progressive rock albums and what great progressive rock bands delivered to create great albums. So imagine this, all right? You got the left side of it, okay? And the left side of the scale is the musicality, which is how pleasant the music is to the ear, you know, how it feels, the, the creating wonderful melodies in the music that are catchy and being emotional and the attachment of the listener, right? It's more of the, the pleasantness, the emotional attachment, right? So that's the left side. But then you have the far right side of the scale, which is technicality. And this is almost like the quote unquote prog side. So this is where we get the, the classic elements of prog, the, the odd time signatures, the complexity, the experimentation, the weirdness, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so, and the strange melodies and harmonies, crazy solos, et cetera, right? So now, in my opinion, the best progressive rock bands sit right in the middle of that scale. It's a perfect combination of musicality and technicality. I can certainly appreciate the far left or the far right progressive rock bands, though, right? This album, I'd place probably at an eight on the scale of one to ten because I believe this is probably the most technical album that we've had on the show. But I think there's a big misconception because people, when they think prog, they think ten. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's it's almost like it's an adjective. Like you know, we're gonna make the we're gonna prog this song up, which means we're gonna make three guitar solos. We're gonna lengthen it by fifteen minutes. And right. we're going to have, you know what I mean? And we're going to have like four different, time signatures. Yes. Yeah, and we're going like, to have like four movements. That's so it's almost like Prague has become an adjective when really it's more, it's more of a genre. It's a subgenre of rock music, just like grunge and all that stuff is. So that's how I imagine it. You know, when I think of like far left, I think of bands similar to, uh, t- similar to Pink Floyd. They're not technically, they're not technical at all. And some people don't even consider them progressive rock. They just think of them as being classic rock bands. Yeah. You know, so even though they are, I mean, they definitely have progressive rock elements, which is a part of that whole, you know, thinking if uh, thinking of Prague as being sort of an adjective, you know, so my favorite bands, which, you know, this is obviously subjective, but in my opinion, some of my favorite bands are Rush and Pink Floyd and Yes, Yes and Genesis and, and all that bands that we've already listened to. And the reason why we've done those albums and done those bands first is because I believe they've caught the scale right in the middle. They're very musical. They're pleasant. They're fun to listen to, but they also show a source of talent with their technicality and the complexity of their music. ELP, though is a little bit more interesting. And, and Drew, please give me your input on this as well because I want to hear what you have to say about this. But ELP is a little bit more technical than most of the other bands that we've had on the show. Yeah, I, I would say so, at least with um, the amount of notes. Oh my right? gosh, uh, yeah. It's just, it's it's a lot crammed into one You bar, think Through the especially... Fire and Flames on Guitar Hero was hard. You should try putting one of ELP's <sighs> songs on it's, there. Well, it's like, yeah, it's Emerson 
was just a madman, right? I mean, you hear just, you hear him playing and you can envision like his hands moving at lightning speed, you know? And there's a lot, and it's, it's not just one hand, it's two, right? And he had in his live shows and you could tell he had like this wall of keyboards around oh him. Like he, was in an ig- he was like in an igloo of, of keyboards. Now he was above the water, but it was like he was trapped in there. Yeah. Uh, with all these keyboards and this big wall that he like took some, you know, wires out and put them different places to get different sounds. Patches. Cause they yeah. had a, like so many, yeah, patches. It's so many different sounds that he wanted to create with, with his synthesizers that he had to do that. Yeah. Um, and he had a, a bunch of keyboards to do that, but, yeah, it was just there's a lot of notes all at once, yeah. and in a, on top of that, Carl Palmer rushes the tempo. Yeah, right. He makes it, he makes it. It's it, it. It starts one tempo, and then it creeps up by yeah. you know probably at least five BPM. It's, it's definitely right, not a Nashville country session. That's for sure. It's not. You know, it's, it's, it's it's very freeform. And honestly, in an interview that I read with Carl Palmer, he describes progressive rock as having elements of that. He's like. People were asking him, was like, you know, the music, like, it, it seems like it changes tempo. Does it? Like, they were asking questions about their music. Like, it seems like at this point of the song, it changes tempo. Does it? And he's like, well, probably. That's that's prog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, probably it does. I don't know. Like, we're just, we're playing the music. You know, they really didn't have a conceptual, you know, they didn't really, con- you know, uh, conceptualize the time of the music and being on time every single beat and making sure everything is perfect. They just kind of did it. And Carl Palmer's playing is also, I agree with you. It's its its not really, uh, it's not just your typical backbeat. You know, it's not a typical. No, I mean, it's progressive rock drumming. Yeah. It is, it's difficult. It's, it's very, very It's very weird. creative. It, it's very, it's very creative. creative. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, man, I would have loved to see them when they were they were live. I'll t- I'll, I guess if it's okay with you, we'll take this moment to talk oh, about dude, their live shows. Oh, dude, let's talk about their live shows for a second. So, just this this song alone, the Carnival Nine, this big thirty minute piece. Yeah, this is the. Th- by the way, the, the, this is the first impression, part one of the first impression that we're listening to right now. So this is the right. this is the very first Carnival Nine uh, section that you hear on the record. Right. Also, by the way, this was like my favorite song ever for like at least a year oh, or dude. two. Like when I first heard this, I was like, "This is my favorite." Dude, song. it's incredible. Like, and and I, at this point, I had already discovered like my favorite stuff too. Yeah, of right? I had already discovered Rush and Pink Floyd and all that, and so I thought nothing would ever break that. And then I heard this, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, dude. this is amazing! This is so creative! This is so high energy! This is a an incredibly high octane song." Yeah, I like right? that. Super high energy. Most of the time, I think of like. Uh, overdriven electric guitars mm-hmm. right playing notes really fast this is again kind of what i said earlier it's basically the same thing but with keyboards instead yeah <laughs> um and they have guitars in here too of, of course, course yeah. but, but anyway back um, to the live shows yeah so they had some of the most elaborate live performances you can imagine especially for its time oh, uh, yeah for its time yeah so, specify that for sure so i think they spent most of their quote unquote earnings or profits with this record to reinvest in their shows. They weren't concerned about money. They just wanted to make a really great live performance. And they had done that historically, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, right. that this was a history of them as they said, look, obviously we want to make money doing this, but we don't need a lot of it. So the extra that we have that we are willing to part with. Let's put that into our shows again. Let's put a lot of what we earned into the shows instead of just keeping it for ourselves, which I think is really neat. Mm-hmm. So 
they they did that with this and it totally like I, I I think about how much it must have cost them. They had so much equipment. It's ridiculous. They had 40 tons. 40 tons of equipment on tour. Now, I don't know how that relates on a scale because I haven't like looked up you want, like you averages want to know? of like you want sure. To know? Okay. So sure. 40, 40 tons is what they carried in 1973 for this record. Right? right. Okay. Paul McCartney carries 45 tons today. Oh, man. Yep. Yeah. Paul McCartney. Now, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, his yeah. show is very, if you haven't seen Paul McCartney live, it's, it's very elaborate. Well, and, and he has several pieces. This was three guys. Yep. Oh, this yeah. This was three performers on stage. He has, Paul McCartney now has on stage at least five, maybe six or seven. Yeah. Because he's got a couple of guitarists behind him, like at least two, yeah. and then him. So that's three right there. He's got a drummer. He's got a keyboardist. So that's at least five, yeah. like I said. And I'm pretty sure he has some other people, especially for stuff that has trumpets in there yep. or yep. something or, or horn he's sections. Got, yeah, he's got all um, kinds of stuff. That's, but he has but, a lot more members. That's primarily the exactly. Yeah, that's the yeah. exactly. That's the point. So there's there's three of these guys, and they had so. I mean, you look at like I I encourage anyone listening to this episode to go online on YouTube and type in like uh, like a carnival nine live or something mm -hmm. or just see him or something it's incredible or if you want to see something crazy absolutely crazy just type in keith emerson revolving piano oh my so gosh, destin dude. do you know about yes. this do you know about yes. this yes but you got to so talk about he, it they found a way to actually have keith emerson be raised in the air with a grand piano not a keyboard a grand Stupid, piano dude revolving forward so he is like upside down yep. playing the keys on this who knows how heavy that thing is stupid it's a freaking grand piano stupid, dude. and it's revolving around while he's still playing flawlessly yeah uh, no, right that's, he's that's... playing and it's complicated stuff this is not jingle bells this yeah. is complicated <laughs> stuff oh, right yeah. classical music that's how he was trained he's a classical musician and uh yeah he had that revolving at some point they had points where they really wanted to show the story of Carnival 9, which, by the way, is uh, uh, basically their premonition that, you know, computers are going to take over society. Yeah, it's, right? this it's, it's a sci-fi kind of thing. It's a sci-fi yeah. thing. This dystopian, you know, computers are going to take us all over because we're too dependent upon them, blah, uh -huh, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and th they had a point where they wanted to destroy the computer at the end. This big, like, smoke goes up in the air, and, like, they have this prop of the, this massive computer on there. And, you know, Keith, not Keith Emerson, uh, Carl Palmer yep. has, like, huge, huge gongs Gong. behind yep. him. These, you know, Asian Chinese gongs behind him. And, you know, double kick drums. You know, it's just, it's crazy. They had so much equipment. Well, here, and, let, me, uh, let, me, let me pause you there because let me tell you about Carl Palmer's drum set, okay? I don't know if you know this. His entire drum set was made of stainless steel for the tour. Did you know this? Oh, wow. Okay. No, I didn't. So, so he had, obviously, I mean, his, his kit, I mean, it's, you know... Um, I'm just trying to think of like somebody who would know like a really large, it, it's a large drum kit. He had a very large drum kit, all kinds of different um, toms and he had the gong behind him and everything. They were all made of stainless steel for the tour. I looked this up. The drum kit weighed 3,000 pounds. Oh my gosh. Stainless steel. And then think about this. He also had the electronics with him as well. He was playing the electronic stuff. So he had the pads. Yep. He had this stainless steel drum kit. He had a gong you know like yeah and that's just drums alone it's you know ridiculous I mean? yeah i mean the only other time i've ever seen a gong was actually the police that's it uh -huh. you know that's that's all I've, that's the only time i've ever yeah. seen a gong behind the drummer like it's just you know it's weird but anyway back to what you were saying i just had to make that comment oh, yeah, about absolutely. Carl drum well, you had mentioned and and i'll go into it here just because we're kind of on the topic of that of uh 
of his electronic stuff. And we mentioned that a little bit earlier. But like you said, he innovated a lot of stuff. And at that time, it was it was new, right? Having a, very. a synthesized percussive sound was very new. And I think he was one of the first to kind of bring it into the forefront, right? Because again, they were popular. They were very popular at this time. So from what I understand is they had an electrician that helped them when, when recording, you know, and they were yeah. creating new sounds and everything. And back then they only had eight sounds. So I compare it to, I know Destin, you a long time ago, when we were first starting out, you had a, this Alesis pad, right? It, it these, did. Like, these eight little rectangles, right? But you yep. could still program a, a fair amount of sounds on there, right? Yeah, yeah, you, uh, could, put a, you could put a lot of sounds in those there, things there nowadays. Was, yeah, nowadays there's, there's quite a large catalog alone, just on defaults alone on a lot yeah. of these instruments. But back then, they, they had the eight sounds on that pad and that was it. That's what was pre-programmed, that's what you got. And that was it. Yep. And, uh, but it's still really cool. You know, you, you hear all these sounds, um, but I just think it's of note to say, uh, that that this was one of the first of synthesized yeah, yeah electronic that surprised drums. me that's that honestly surprised me because i honestly don't know a whole lot about their live shows i didn't i mean obviously i never saw them live but i didn't know that carl palmer was so innovative with his drums i really didn't know that until after i started researching it a little bit so i really i i, I honestly like i need to i wasn't even listening for the electronic stuff and so i've never actually really noticed that it was electronic until i just now knew about it yeah, you know. Yeah. So now I, I want to go back and hear it, so I can be like, "Oh my gosh, this is cool." Well, to, you just hear the electronic sounds. You just entered the second impression underneath. I did. Yes, I um, did. So yeah, this is a weird. I think the one that everyone really gravitates toward is the first impression. Yes, because it's just so high energy. It's so melodic. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. It, it grabs you, and it's it's my favorite. It's absolutely yep. my favorite on the record too. It's just it's crazy high energy, but really melodic too. Very pleasing sounds yeah. as well. And it's also one of the most. I mean, I, it also had the the real popular, which I mean, prog radios and stuff like that use this all the time. But you know, the the, the second part of the first impression is that very very just pop, super popular line. Right. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Right. And uh, which we obviously kicked off the show with on here, and um. And so that, that's a, I mean, that's a very, very popular, uh, I guess you say, uh, what, just part or yeah, a lyric, lyric or yeah, song yeah. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway. Well, it's, they're pretty proud, at least Greg Lake was pretty proud that uh, they foresaw the dominance of technology in our society and our dependence on it. Yeah. You know, it's something I think he said in an interview, uh, you know, because that's what this is about, right? At the end, at the, again, I don't really hear it in the lyrics that much like the first and second impression but the third one you absolutely can't especially because yes. they change the voice there's a part in there where they play a character of the computer talking to them saying i'm perfect yep. you know basically bow down to me is essentially what it's saying you know yeah. uh you know but then the human's like but i'm the one who gave you life blah 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 and you can tell it's like a dialogue right it's it's yeah. very story heavy particularly yeah. the rest the, the rest impression. of the the rest of the impressions are just are, are so insane musically. You don't even have time to think about what the heck the lyrics are talking about. Yeah, <laughs> see <laughs> you know what I mean. True. No, it's kind of true. Um, but but, this, but the second impression is interesting though because it it goes into like a more jazzy like Miles yeah. Davis style. Well, jazzy. Very... Yeah, I get the jazzy feel for sure, and I think the classical piano really helps with that. That's where yeah. I feel it a lot. Is that yeah. that classic piano sound, not synthesized. Yeah. Exactly. Very subdued piano, more organic, more acoustic. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's an interesting section. But I, I certainly, uh, personally, I don't know about you, but I mean, the second and third impression are not my favorite. Um, They've the grown on me. 
yeah. particularly the second one. They've grown on me, but still the first is for me. The amazing. first one's just it's balling. Just, yeah. Oh, it's it's crazy. <laughs> man, I haven't heard that term since in high school. Man, I know. I brought that one back, dude. That's balling right there. Yeah, cool. it's a man section, dude. Oh <laughs> man, not only is that like a like a super outdated term, but to use it in the context, I know. Of rock. I know. Like, I love it, right, dude? That prog song, dude. That's a balling track, balling, bro. Dude. Oh hey, man, you want to know a fun dude. fact about this record? Yeah. Did you know Greg Lake produced it? I did not. I yeah. Did not know yeah. Greg Lake produced the record, um, which he's probably cool. making. Yeah. He's making up for his lack of guitar in some of these songs by producing the record. No, I'm kidding. Whoa. Um, yeah. Whoa, man. But, shots uh, fired. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, I mean, it's, it, you know, facts a <laughs> fact. There is not a whole lot of guitar except for maybe two or three songs. You know, everything else is mainly keyboards. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and bass. I mean, because I think and bass, true. primarily true. throughout their whole career it was primarily bass but he played i mean you know and you can hear he plays guitar beautifully and he will but for their music there's just it seems like a lot more bass to me yeah and maybe that's because i'm a bassist, so i hear that more i don't know but yeah yeah it's super cool yeah um but let me ask you a question about this because i've i'll let you i've i've seen holy cow that is unreal that right there is unreal um, I, I've seen this online and I, I get, I get the mixed feedback from all kinds of people when I'm reading about some of the records, uh, or reading about this record, but also reading about ELP and just what everybody's opinion about it is. Do, do you think that this album is overplayed? Hmm. Very interesting. I've seen both sides of the, of the story hmm. on this one. I've so seen personally. Yeah. Hmm. I was not expecting this question. That's a, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, because I have mixed feelings about it. I want to say here's let me give you my places, answer. Yes, I'll in get, some I'll, places, yes, yes, I agree. That's what that's my answer. In some places, I think it is. Other places, I think it's impressive enough, but also catchy. Yeah, yeah. And, so I would yeah. say overall, overall, no. I would say overall, no. It's not overplayed. I understand completely where people are saying that, but you also got to understand. I don't know. That was kind of their thing. That was kind of their thing was to bring this high energy, lots of notes, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of feel. And it worked for them. I mean, it does for me. I mean, you know, if you enjoy the music, you enjoy the music. And I clearly do. So, yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's overplayed on the whole. There are parts where I'm like, okay, there's too much going on here. This is busy. Yes. But on the whole, yeah. no, I don't think so. I don't yeah, think so. I think honestly, the only the only real section, the only real song that, uh, when it comes to this album, the only thing that I really think people are referring to when it talks about is the album overplayed is Carnival Nine because it's just a freaking yeah, m- you know, madman. You know, it, it's it's all over the place. But maybe Tocada. Yeah, maybe Tocada as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, I, I just I wanted to know what your opinion on that was because I agree. I, I think that there's certain parts of it that are a little overplayed, and mostly for me, it's in the second and third impression that I hear that and I'm like, okay, this is starting to get a little, it's, it doesn't get memorable. It starts losing the memorable as, the, as each, you know, imp- it, you know, as each, um, no, I, gosh, I totally impression. get that. Yeah. I totally get that. Um, yeah. The first part is amazing. Second, you know, the or first impression, first part, amazing. First part or first impression. Second part is incredible. Second impression. I'm like, okay, there's a couple of catchy moments in this that I, that, that just kind of rolls through my head a lot. But the third one it starts dying a little bit, you know, 
that's just my personal opinion about the record. Um, and of course, Tokata, but Jerusalem still you turn me on, Benny the Bouncer, and that first part make this album for me totally worth listening to because it's it's a it's a it's a proper introduction to ELP. You know, which which I was fortunately this is I don't know about you, but this was the first ELP record I heard. Yeah, I think this was for me as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was. think from here I went to listen to Trilogy, and then um, that's uh, I've listened to Tarkus as well. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, um, and which is a full on. I think that's a full on concept album, which was before yeah. Trilogy, was it not? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but anyway, yeah, that's part of it i want to know what your opinion on that was so but uh that is the basically the entire record that we've really well, we've gone through I, most of it haven't we yeah i wanted to talk about still you turn me on because i i didn't get a chance to really oh talk please about that. yeah they, i love that they song. told and yeah we're we're gonna end the, the show with it it yeah. is um like dustin said it's a very pretty it's a very pretty piece uh very lilting and all of that mm-hmm. um but that was historic for them historically they had done that with a lot of their other records on their very debut album emerson lincoln palmer lucky man was the hit off of that yes and that was a greg lake song and that's the thing that's the reason they didn't put it into a single yes still you turn me on is because they had done that already with lucky man and from the beginning and they said collectively not just you know the other two saying hey you're stealing the show but greg lake too admit you know he agreed he was like look this isn't like those songs have kind of overshadowed the rest of the band yes. and their ballads. They're not totally reflective of the rest of our music. And I want to reiterate, this is not Greg Lake and the other two, right? Exactly. So just because this is the most popular song on the album, listen to the rest of the album, right? Right. Or, or whatever. So we're not going to make this a single because we don't want people to be like, oh, yeah, Emerson and Palmer, Still You Turn Me On is basically them in a nutshell. Because it's not really. No, not at all. You know, that happens so, a lot. You know what I mean? That really does it, happen a it lot. It does with a lot of bands. With a lot of like, bands look, happens a lot. Yeah. This that happens just to us, who we are. actually. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Our, our band has a song. And I, I love the song that's popular. I think it's a good song that we made. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. But a lot of people are like, oh, cool. I'll just listen to that's, that. And that's what you else. sound like. And it's like, no. That, or that, that's, Yeah. That's your sound. And it's like, this one's pretty different from the rest of our stuff. But the other stuff is still really good. You know, like, yeah. Uh, anyways, I feel like a lot of bands struggle with that sometimes. Too, yeah. So. But yeah, that's that. So I was I was on the ball with that one. I was I was around the uh, the general area when it when it comes to the reason why they didn't release it as a single. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, and it's a wonderful song, and I I love it to death. It um, is. No, they're they're fantastic songs. Yeah, it's really cool. You want to know? You want to know that I uh, want to know another fun fact about this record? Um, yeah, I'm gonna uh, to, yeah. I'm gonna have to think about that and get back to you. Okay. Uh, you know, I guess Shoot. sure. Uh, Gosh, hey, you man. know, hey, you know, thanks. Hey, you know, thanks. Uh, yep. So the the <laughs> so originally the name of this album was actually going to be "Whip Some Skull on You." Isn't that hilarious? All right, that shouldn't have made me laugh as much as it did, but it did. I did not know that. Uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. I had to hey, mention man, I'm that. Gonna, dude, you better watch out, or I'm gonna whip some skull. I'm gonna whip some skull. Oh! On you. No, no, no. It's not you. It was ya. Y a. Oh, yep. they made it. Yeah. Yep. Whip some skull on you. Isn't that funny? Wait, I- just feel like some animated like character it's just great. coming into like like a close up and they're like pointing their finger at the audience this animated character i'm gonna whip some skull on you yeah like shoot yep oh my no goodness. i yeah. i i'm glad i think they, they atlantic which was yeah the atlantic the uh 
the record label was like, no, we ain't doing that. And so I think they got brain salad surgery from like a quote from somebody um, that they, that they heard it. I think it was a, either a song or a poem or something. And uh, they, they made a brain salad surgery, but I just had to mention that because it made me laugh when I read that. I was like, that is, thank God they didn't use that title because it would not, it, it just doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of, yeah, yeah, but either way. Um, Okay. I got one last, one last question for you before we wrap this thing up. Um, Unless you got something else to say, but no, I just wanted to sigh heavily. Go ahead. Shoot. Okay. Um, So here's what I want. I wanted to ask how, how did this album, or how do you believe that this album specifically helped shape the progressive rock genre? Um, well, I think you kind of said it before. It's unfortunate that some people took it as pretentious and that some people said, mm-hmm. oh, it's so highbrow and these people are always stuck up their own arses. I, I, don't, I don't feel that when I listen to ELP, to be honest. I... I can see where people would say that. I get, I get where you're coming from when people, if you subscribe to that belief that it is pretentious and that you know it's highbrow and not accessible. To me, it's just more experimental, and they wanted to kind of turn the technical knob up just a little bit, just for the, honestly for their own sakes. I don't think they were trying to prove anything. No, I think they just wanted to have fun with the music, and for them, fun was a little bit more complex. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, and you listen to these guys; they're they're very relatable. You know. Um, yeah. They're, they're, they're not too highbrow or anything like that. So I think in a way, unfortunately, it kind of gave people the impression that it is pretentious in some yeah. aspects. So I think that's how it shaped the, the genre and from an image standpoint. Yeah, I, you're um, absolutely right. I, I didn't even think about the negative aspect of, of yeah. that. I was honestly really asking the question for the positive. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it definitely probably gave a, a, you know, a negative connotation to progressive rock or prog or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Well, and even, even in our band, one, you know, our, our close friend and bandmate, the guitarist, um, Bez, he, he had said, he, he said, honestly, when I listen to this, it's really cool and I love it. It gives me a headache. It's so much. It gives me a headache. Yeah. Uh, sometimes. So he, he, I mean, when I first showed it to him, at least he was like, I got to take this in doses. This is just too much. It's just too much mm-hmm. notes all at once. So much high energy in your face. Uh, in a positive aspect, uh, it definitely pushed the boundaries. It yeah. definitely pushed the boundaries. But um, this is the most technical. But then you'll hear some other bands that are kind of along prog rock that just go too far. Yeah, that's why you know I put it, that's why I put it at an eight because I've he- I've heard a ten. You know what I mean? On my <laughs> on my scale, I've heard a ten. I've heard ten. I've heard, I've heard a ten. 10. And, and ten is just it's it's so far on the technical side. It's just it's lost all musicality. It's it's not yes. catchy. It's it's yeah. what it's what now I, I guess the more modern version or modern uh, vernacular would be math rock. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Where and I'm not saying that math rock is a level ten. I'm saying that it's it's almost that's kind of the vernacular that you that goes towards level ten music because it's not even progressive rock at that point. It's so so far technical that the rhythms change every five seconds. All of that, and it, it's just it's just all over the place. Um, Carnival Nine, the first impression, is a solid song that has technicality, but also still has catchy lyrics, great melodies. And honestly, some of the technical stuff can be catchy as well because they do it multiple times at some time, you know, the all that stuff. Like yeah. when they're doing the weird runs and the, uh, oh, yeah. all that stuff, it, it still stays catchy. So I, I, I certainly, this album is probably the, um, least 
well, never mind. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. And it's it's probably the least accessible that we've listened to on the show. And I say accessible with quotations around it because that's subjective. Accessible is subjective. Um, but right. but you know, I think it's I think it's kind of an, a level eight because it 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 is very very uh, weird and and out there. But uh, it's still cool, still interesting, still prog rock, and it's still music. Well, yeah, and this band. And well, this album and this band particularly also really help support what we've mentioned in the past that a very common thread between a lot of these early prog rock pioneers was that they used a lot of classical influence. And I think Keith Emerson is the poster child for that. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and yeah. throughout I mean, all he, their records. He, he, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think he's probably, I don't know a whole lot of history about Keith Emerson. Um, but I, if I could imagine what he was like when he was a child, I can imagine that he is, he was a child prodigy that played classical hymns in church on a piano and an organ, and then broke out from that and wanted to do something a little bit more, uh, unleashed, if you will. And then, but still hanging nice and all hanging fairly tenaciously onto those roots of classical music, you know? Absolutely. Um, so so yeah, uh, but I think that's the way it shaped progressive rock. Is that again? It, yeah, that 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 classical influence was probably heaviest with them. But again, you saw it with other bands too, right? You saw it with you know we Cans and Brahms, right? That we saw on yep. Yes is Fragile that we reviewed on the third episode, and um, you know what am I trying to think of? Rush, even twenty one twelve. They introduced yeah. the the eighteen twelve overture, and so you know that's classic thread. But again, this this band was the most, and Keith Emerson was the most to kind of really push that classical yeah. influence. I think in because he wrote rock. he wrote most of the melodies. So being being a primarily classically trained musician, that's obviously going to come out more than some of the other bands that we've listened to. Well, any last any last words you want to say before we uh, close this thing out? No, no, I'm awesome. I'm, I'm all set. Awesome. Well, hey, we would both like to thank everyone for for listening to our podcast. These are our prog notes for brain salad surgery. If you enjoyed the episode, learned something new from the episode, please subscribe and share. We would be eternally grateful. We also appreciate all feedback and comments. And so, Drew, what is the next episode's album going to be on? The next episode, we are doing "Thick as a Brick" by Jethro Tull wonderful that's gonna be an interesting episode well, yeah we'll go ahead it's and preface fun. this now this will be new for us too so yeah it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be yeah, uncharted gonna be territory so yeah yeah so join us next time as we discover the past present future of rock rock see you next time thanks guys